I invite you to open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we'll look at verses 30 through 31. But before I turn there, I do just want to express how thankful um, I am. I, I've been the youth director here for the last three years, and my family and I are so thankful for PBC. I'm thankful for my, my wife and daughter's support of the ministry. I'm thankful for the elders who have been an example to me and to the rest of you. I'm thankful for the families who have made uh, PBC feel like home for us. Uh, for the staff who have served with me in the youth ministry, who have been faithful and served our students. And I've been so encouraged uh, to know and to fellowship with the students who have come through the youth ministry. So I just wanted to tell you guys how thankful I am as we get started. Well, this morning I want to talk to you all about division. We live in a very divided world, a world that is divided over many many different issues. And the world isn't just divided over trivial issues like who makes the better chicken sandwich, Chick-fil-A or Popeyes, that we know it's Chick-fil-A, right? Right? No, the world is divided actually over uh, more serious issues, issues uh, in politics and in political parties, um, issues like masks and vaccines, and we see this everywhere. We see the division all around us. The world is divided on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. It, it is just divided, and in one sense, that really shouldn't surprise us. Because the world doesn't have the same purpose that the church has, and it doesn't have the same power that the church has to be united. So while the the world might rally around different concepts, ideologies, etc., uh, they will never truly be unified in the biblical sense. But there is a major problem when there's division in the church because the church does have the purpose and power to be united. In fact, God in his word calls the church to be united time and time again, so much so that scripture warns us to watch out for those who cause divisions, who cause factions in the church. God wants his church to be unified, and not at the expense of truth, but in truth. And this morning, I want us to see how Paul confronts the division in the Corinthian church. Because this division that ought to be foreign to the church makes its way into the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, and that is a major, major problem. The Corinthian church is divided, and that is one of many issues that Paul has to confront and deal with in 1 Corinthians. And what I want you to notice is not just that the apostle confronts the church, not just that he says they need to stop doing what they're doing, but I want you to see how he does it. Again, Paul could, he could write a letter to any church and say, you guys need to stop doing that, that's wrong, and start doing this, and his letters would be quite a bit shorter if he just said that, right? But he, he takes time to show the church how they're, Moral deviation is actually a deviation away from the gospel. 
And time and time again, along with telling them what to do, he helps them to see how they need to live consistently with the gospel and remember the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is the remedy, as it were, for issues in the church and specifically for the division in the church that Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians. He confronts this division. And by the way, I'm not preaching on division because PBC's a divided church in any way or because PBC's like Corinth. It's, it's not. But Paul's remedy for the church works uh, for the, the divided church, but it also works for the church that's already united. It, it solidifies our conviction to be united. It, it keeps us united. It, it keeps us from becoming divided. So we need to know what Paul has to say, what God's word has to say. And as we talk about unity this morning, I just want to ask you, are you a source of unity at PBC, at the church? Or are you a source of division? What do you contribute to the unity of the body? Because Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. Are you eager for the unity of the church? This morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, I want to show you three factors of the gospel, three factors of the gospel, so that, that we, that you, would be united. Three factors of the gospel, so that you would be united. And I want to begin reading, look down in your Bibles, we'll start at verse 26 just to grab some context, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, would you enable me to preach faithfully? Would you cause your word to pierce hearts, to convict and to help uh, correct any divisiveness in our church? And may the glories of the gospel and the glories of what you have done unite us together as we recognize that all of our salvation is all because of you, Father. So thank you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, like I said, I have three factors of the gospel for you so that you would be united. And the first factor that I want to point out begins right there in verse 30, and it's this, the who of the gospel. The who of the gospel. Paul says in verse 30, and because of him, 
you are in Christ Jesus, the who of the gospel. And now if we're going to understand this, we do need to zoom out and look at the context of 1 Corinthians 1. Once again, Paul is writing to this church that is deeply divided. And in verses 10 through 17, he confronts that division in the church. He confronts it. Look down in your Bibles and just skim through 10 through 17. He's appealing to them not to be divided, but to be unified. He hears that there's quarreling. He, he hears that some are saying, I follow Paul, or, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He says, is Christ divided? You, you, are, you church, you, you Corinthians, you are uh, forming into factions and elevating these men and boasting in them, and there's jealousy and quarreling and strife, and so he confronts that issue. And he reminds them in verse 17 that when he came to them, he didn't dress up the gospel with eloquence. He came and preached it faithfully. The gospel doesn't need eloquence. And he confronts the church for acting as if it does and for making factions and being divided. And then he turns and shows the church how they really ought to think about the gospel. That the division that that the gospel causes is not between believer and unbeliever, the one who's super smart and and a Calvinist, and the, the one who's not. That's not the division that Paul makes. He shows that the actual division is between the believer and the unbeliever. Because to the believer, the gospel is the power of God. And to the unbeliever, the gospel is utter foolishness. And so he explains that and Then that brings us to verses 26 through 31, where now he wants them to consider their calling. And he reminds them, in the negative, um, Corinthians, you weren't called because you're awesome. You weren't called, you weren't saved because you've got a lot of uh, extra spiritual strength and muscle. In fact, you were saved in light of your weakness and littleness and lack of power. God saved those who had nothing to bring to the table. That's what he does. And that's part of the reason why we can't boast. Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And, and, and Paul reminds the church, you didn't do this. You, have, you, you were nothing And God doesn't choose and save people who trust in themselves. He humbles them and shows them that they need to trust him. That's the negative. And oftentimes, I think in our minds, we we hope that God will save the celebrities and save um, just those people in in the power. And, And we want that for sure. I want all of the politicians and all the celebrities to be saved. But we, we can be tempted to think that, oh God, if, if that happened, then you'd really be glorified. That would, be, then that would really help your cause, God. But no, actually, in this section, Paul says that God did this because it brings glory to him. Because that it, it helps no human being boast in the presence of God. Not that God doesn't save those who are smart or those who have stuff. But he do, all of his salvation is to show us that we are not to boast. So in this calling section, he, he reminds us we have no room for boasting. How dare we boast? 
And then on the other hand, he shows us that God is chiefly responsible for our salvation. He is the one who has caused it. He is the one who has brought it about. And so while we did nothing, we don't deserve any credit. He has done it all and deserves all the credit. And so Paul then in 30 says, it's be- and because of him. You didn't do this. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God alone is the one who deserves the credit for your salvation. And if we're not careful, we can be tempted at times to think of salvation in the same way we might think of a group project. Raise your hand if you've done a group project in school. Maybe some of you guys. You've done a group project. You know how they work. What usually happens is one person knows what they're doing and wants a good grade. The rest of them maybe aren't concerned or as concerned. And so one person ends up doing all the work and then, <laughs> and then turns in that work and here comes his two or three partners who get all the credit as well. And the guy's like, I spent all this time and, and now this credit, the credit's distributed. And sometimes if we're not careful, we think of salvation like that. God does all the work, but we still get kind of some of the credit. We contribute we show up to church, we, we listened, we, we heard we did this, we did that. But salvation is no group project. Though God does all the work, he alone receives all or ought to receive all the credit. And again, we can be tempted to look to ourselves and consider our, where we deserve glory and where we deserve an ounce at least of praise. Charles Spurgeon was working through this at a time. And he, he talked about how he was just working through who is really responsible for salvation? Who, who is really behind all of this? And here's what he wrote. He said, the thought struck me. How did you be, how come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened to me and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. It's all because of him. And that's exactly what Spurgeon recognized. Even his faith, even his belief is a gift from God. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Even belief has been granted, gifted by God, along with suffering to the believer. And so Paul wants to make it abundantly clear, this is because of him. But what specifically does Paul say in verse 30? Look down in your Bibles. Paul says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Now that might be a truth that we can easily skim over. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Think about it. How would you answer that question? 
What, what is it to be in Christ Jesus? What is so significant about that? Well, to be in Christ Jesus speaks to the doctrine of our union with Christ. And union with Christ is one of the most precious and valuable doctrines, and yet, at the same time, one that we don't always understand or value as we ought to. To be united with Christ is one of the most precious realities for the believer to revel in. And part of the reason is because there are two types of people in the world. Everyone is born in Adam. And if you're born in Adam, you will die unless something changes. We are all born in Adam. Adam is our our representative. He is the one who who failed. He is the one who sinned and we um, inherit what has come because of that. And we fail and we sin and we rebel against God as a result. And we're also under condemnation as a result of that. We are in Adam and if we're in Adam at birth, we are detached from the life-giving vine unable to bear fruit, unable to please God. But because we're in Christ, everything is different. Being in Christ, united to Jesus Christ, ought to be one of the most precious things to you because it is, it is through being united to him that you receive life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation If you're in Adam, you're under condemnation, but Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it is infinitely precious to be in Christ. And all of this is because of the Father, um, because scripture says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. We were crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. And one day when he returns, we will be revealed, glorified with him. He is our life. Because of the Father, we are in Christ. And now zooming out once again, I want to ask the question, how is this supposed to unify the church? How does it unify PBC knowing that all of our salvation, all of the glories that come to us, the jewels of our salvation are because of him? It unifies us because we know that we don't bring anything to the table of our salvation. And therefore we don't boast in ourselves. We don't exalt ourselves. When when we exalt the self, the church is divided. It's when we are humbled and leveled by the gospel that we recognize that we have no right to elevate ourselves above above other people. To look down on other people is really a contradiction of the belief that God is chiefly responsible for our salvation. So the question is not do you know this is true but do do you live as if this is true? And while there might be a few ways to know that, one is just to ask yourself, do you look down on other people? Do you look down on unbelievers because they haven't got it yet? Do you look down on unbelievers as if the reason you're saved is because you just figured it out? Because you're just smarter than them or, or you have had more experience because you're so godly and they just haven't put it together yet that doesn't reflect a right understanding that all of our salvation is because of him. 
Or do you look down on believers who aren't as far along as you, as if your salvation and and your progress is all because of you? The test often of our doctrine is not just in what we sign off on, but in how we live. So does this impact the way you live? Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, Christian. That's the who of the gospel, this, this factor that ought to unify the church, that ought to keep the church from boasting in self and um, contributing to uh, jealousy and strife in the church, the who of the gospel. But my second point, my second point is the what of the gospel. The what of the gospel. And here we'll read the rest of verse 30 where Paul, speaking of Christ Jesus, says, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The what of the gospel. Paul begins to unpack what, how precious Christ is to us. What benefit do we receive in nature by, by nature of being in Christ? And he says that Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Now here, once again, if we don't understand the context, that might be a little confusing. So let me help you understand. Look down in your Bibles to verse 18. Paul says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those, or to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. And when Paul goes on to explain this more, he he makes it very clear, look at verse 22, that this gospel is rejected by the world. Read with me verses 22 through 24. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And he goes on. And the picture we have is that to the world, Christ is folly. Or, he says, a stumbling block. And this is one of the reasons why, as Christians, we can't embrace or even tolerate any idea of universalism or just coexistence. Because our gospel is foolishness to the world. Our gospel is a stumbling block to the world. And and if we're trying in any way to to dress the gospel up, to make it more pretty, to make it more palpable to the world, we are compromising. The gospel doesn't need our editing. It doesn't. Its power is is without us. We don't need to add words of eloquence. We don't need to make it nicer than it is. Because the gospel will always be foolishness to the heart that is not born again. It will always be foolishness. The gospel that the second member of the Trinity, the God-man, wrapped himself in flesh, didn't lose deity, but took on in his, in his person this, the, the human nature, and that he in, incarnated and lived a perfect life and obeyed the law perfectly. And that he bore the wrath for sinners on himself. That already is foolishness to the world. Because our gospel admits and confesses that we are all born sinners. That's foolishness. 
This Christ, this gospel, to us is wisdom. It is the very means of salvation, but to the world it is foolishness. That Christ raised again from the dead with a real body? Tell that to your materialistic friends or your naturalist friends who believe that this is all there is and there's no spiritual. There's, nothing, there's, there's no miracles. That's foolishness to the world. And we have no right compromising the gospel and dressing up the gospel to make it anything else than it actually is. And that Christ ascended, that he even now is at the right hand of the Father, that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. That is foolishness to the world. But to us, this gospel, this good news, is the wisdom of God. And Christ himself has become the wisdom of God, the power of God unto salvation for us. More than that, or in addition to that, Paul moves on saying, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And he unpacks the treasure box of the gospel and uses these three words to help us to understand more of what he's talking about. First, Christ became to us righteousness. He is our righteousness. I want you to imagine yourself in, in the divine courtroom. All your sins in that courtroom. Everything you've thought, said, and done, past, present, and future. And it's in that courtroom that Christ not only takes the, the debt, takes the punishment for our sins, but grants us his righteousness, imputes to us his righteousness. So we don't just go from guilty to innocent, but righteous before God. And God declares us righteous because of what Christ has done. Because he bore our penalty on the cross and his perfection, his righteousness is imputed to us. So in the courtroom, we receive his righteousness. And Romans 5.1 says that since we have been justified by faith, made righteous or declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is nothing we can add to. This is nothing we should ever seek to take away from. And the moment we act as if we're righteous because God did some things and we do some things, is, that's where we're completely in the wrong. A few months ago, my wife and I both got COVID. Can I say that? We got COVID. And to this day, our taste is still like way off. And I'm seasoning everything and it just doesn't even work. I could just bite into salt and I feel like I can hardly taste it still. But the reality is that the gospel is not like something that needs seasoning. It's not lacking in anything. It is completely sufficient. And the righteousness of Christ should not, cannot ever be added to. So the question is, believer, do you think that you have peace with God because of your actions, of your deeds, because you read your Bible faithfully and you attend church and you're a nice person? Or do you trust completely in this righteousness that has come to us in Christ? The next word Paul examines there or brings our attention to there is sanctification. So not only are we justified in the courtroom, we are sanctified. We are fully washed and clothed. And while sanctification is often used in reference to our progressive sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, here, it's talking about what happened at salvation. Look in your Bibles at, at verse two of chapter one. 
Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is a past tense reality for you, Christian. You have been sanctified. You've been clothed. You've been dressed. You've been washed. 1 Corinthians 1, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul lays out various sins. Sins of sexual sin and, and anger and all sorts of things. And here's what he says after that. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Christ. And believer, I just want to remind and encourage you that if you are in Christ, that is true of you. You have been washed of of all your past sins. You've been cleansed, past, present, and future, actually. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart from your sin and set apart to Christ. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? That Christ's work, Christ's death and resurrection and all that entails actually sanctifies us by faith? That you've been washed? And if you're not a believer and you haven't trusted in Christ, let me just encourage you that you can have all your sins washed away. And if you think to yourself, well, Zach doesn't know this. He he doesn't know that I said or did or thought this doesn't matter all your sins can be sanctified and cleansed that's the promise of the gospel we're justified in the courtroom we're dressed cleansed cleaned and the third word Paul uses there is redemption we have been redeemed we have been bought back from the bondage of sin and death because of what Christ has done we were enslaved to our sin but Christ paid the penalty for us so that we would not just be redeemed from our sin but redeemed unto him so much so that that we belong to him now he is our Lord and and we are his people we've been redeemed we don't leave the courtroom of salvation with nowhere to go we don't go back to the bondage of sin and death anymore We have redemption, and that is true of you if you're in Christ. Now, when we think about redemption, it it does cause many of our minds to go back to the Exodus, and you think of the Israelites in Egypt, and they they leave, they're saved from Egypt, they go through the Red Sea, they get to the promised land, and imagine if one of the Israelites is walking ahead, and he turns around to his friend and tells him, hey, I'm sorry to say this, but I'm just, I'm a little bit more redeemed than you. That would be ridiculous, right? That wouldn't make much sense. They're both redeemed. But as Christians, when we look down on other believers and treat them with contempt, it's as if we're saying, I'm a little farther ahead than you because of my righteousness, because of my progress. I can look down on you now. I'm just a little bit more out of the the bondage of sin and death than you are, which is not true. And remember, Paul brings our attention to this as he is seeking to unify a divided church and level their pride and exalt God's work in their salvation so that they can't say in any way, this is because of me. I've done this. I've accomplished this. So church, are we united in this? 
Or are you causing division or feeling divided because of a misunderstanding of the glory of the gospel? That it levels all of our pride so that as verse 29 says, no human being might boast in the presence of God. We have no right to boast. So that is the the what of the gospel I wanted to lay before you. We've seen first the who of the gospel and second the what of the gospel. And my third point is the why of the gospel. The why of the gospel. And we'll find that in verse 31. Actually, I just want to read verses 30 and 31 all together. It says once more, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's the why of the gospel, all of this, so that we would boast in the Lord and not in ourselves. When Paul writes this here, he alludes back to Jeremiah 9. And in Jeremiah 9, God's people are being indicted for their sin and for the rebellion against God. And on top of that, Jeremiah 9, in a few cases, um, calls them out for not knowing God. They don't know me, Yahweh says. Later on, they refuse to know me. My people don't know me. And then in verse 23 and 24 of Jeremiah 9, it says this, Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God called his people in the past to boast in him and not in what they knew, not in what they could do, and not in what they had. Don't boast in those things. Don't act as if those things somehow merit uh, your acceptance before God. God elsewhere tells them, I didn't choose you because you're many and mighty. I chose you because I chose to set my love on you. And here in in Corinthians, we're being reminded of a similar truth. That we ought not to boast in ourselves or to think for a second that we contribute to our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. No one can boast. So the question then is for you, do you boast in your flesh? Do you boast in your abilities? Do you boast in who you know or, or the, the upbringing you had or the Bible studies you've done or the verses you've memorized? Is that how you will be accepted before God? No. No. Philippians 3.3, Paul says, but we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Once again, do you? Galatians 6.14, Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. A church 
filled with people boasting in themselves and boasting in man is bound to be a divided church. But a church boasting in God, trusting in him completely and praising him with our whole life. That church is one that will be unified around the gospel to the glory of God. I read an account recently of something that happened during the time of Joseph Stalin's uh, leadership. And if you don't know who he is, I believe he's responsible for roughly like six million uh, people dying. So not, um, not a great guy, but he gave this speech and he gave it to this crowd and after the speech, people began to clap and they clapped and they clapped and they clapped. And the thing is, when you're clapping uh, for a murderous dictator, you don't want to be the first one to stop clapping, right? <laughs> so people clapped and clapped and clapped. They clapped for two minutes, three and four and five. Can you imagine that? Your hands would get tired at some point. You'd want to stop, but you don't want to be the first to stop. And it keeps going up to eight, nine minutes 10 minutes passed by, 10 minutes of clapping. And then at the 11th minute, the director of a paper factory decides enough is enough, I'm sitting down. And he sits down. Rookie mistake. He, he's arrested and he goes to prison for 10 years because of that. 10 years. And at the end of it all, he's interrogated and his interrogator says to him, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. He needed that lesson. And when it comes to our boast in God, if men could, out of ill motive, boast for this dictator who was a murderer for 11 minutes, how much more are we to boast for God who is infinitely good and glorious, who is chiefly responsible for our salvation? Ought we not to boast in him for the rest of our lives? and to never fall prey to the lie that we contribute anything, that we deserve any glory, any boasting at all. In church, it's when we behold our God in that, as we recognize how glorious he is in that, and give him the honor and him the glory, that we come closer together as we recognize that this is not about us, this is not about us being more glorified here in the church, but it's all about him. It's all about him. To that end, let us pray. Heavenly Father God, we need your help to place the focus on you as it ought to be and to never in any way act as if our salvation is because of us. Father, unify the church. I pray that you would save those who don't know you so that they could boast in you more and you would help those who are saved continue to boast in you and give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.